This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining us today on Office Hours is Mike Horton, J. Gresham Machen, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of many books, including... The Christian Faith, a Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way, and most recently, For Calvinism, part of a dialogue with a leading Arminian theologian, Roger Olson. And you're free to choose to order For Calvinism, but if you do, it's because God foreordained it from all eternity. And you can do it at the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike. Hey, Scott. And welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you. Glad to be back. Well, it is almost certainly the case that not everybody knows the issues between Calvinism and Arminianism, particularly in North America. People are constantly rediscovering or discovering for themselves for the first time what sometimes are called the doctrines of grace. Nevertheless, there are lots of books out there on Calvinism and Arminianism. So the first and most obvious question, why another book? And tell us the story of this sort of unusual arrangement. Yeah, it's a good question. I didn't want to do the book initially for that very reason. I'm sure the publisher was excited about that. (laughs) to hear that. And they really did talk me into it because I I thought, well, you know, I've written books, lots of books where I defend each of these doctrines, but you know, they said, look, we're publishing Roger Olson's Against Calvinism, and we want something for Calvinism, so a kind of conversation or debate back and forth. And I'm really glad that I did do it because it was a great opportunity to take a look at the doctrines of grace that have so shaped me. You know, when something big—this is the same with you, Scott—something big like the doctrines of grace have shaped you so deeply and broadly in all the ways that you think and apply the Christian faith to your life and so forth. It's not that you lose sight of those doctrinal distinctives, but they're so much part of the warp and woof of everything that you think— that you don't focus on those doctrines by themselves, abstracted from all of the other things that you believe. So it was actually good to make a case just for the doctrines of grace, not to go into all of the other areas of Reformed theology that are bound up necessarily with them, but just focus on the doctrines of grace and also to distinguish some of the classic ways Reformed people have talked about the quote-unquote five points of Calvinism from some of the popular versions of it, even the tulip. So... I don't know if you want to get into that, but I challenge a little bit of the acronym, the TULIP acronym. Well, absolutely, we want to get into that. But one of the things that interests me about this dialogue, and I had a similar experience. I didn't grow up in quite the same way you did, but I I was in evangelical Arminianism for a few years and didn't even really know there was such a thing as Calvinism. And I'm sure that's true for many Americans as well. Is America unique in that respect? And why are Americans so resistant to the doctrines of grace? This is why I ask. In the 5th century, lots of people would have believed the doctrines of grace, and certainly before that. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas taught explicitly much of what we describe as the doctrines of grace, and particularly the doctrine of unconditional election and even a doctrine of reprobation. And certainly in the 16th century, it was widely held. So if it's been widely held through the history of Christian theology, why is it so revolutionary to so many folks today? Yeah, it's been widely held and widely denied. 
you know, it, in one sense, the doctrines of grace are, as you suggest, the most ecumenical doctrines, not the most. I mean, the Nicene Creed is the, the most ecumenical, but are very ecumenically significant because down through the ages, you've had Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Continental Reformed, Anglicans, Baptists, a whole host of denominations and traditions that had significant chunks of those traditions committed to these doctrines, or at least some of them, the basic thrust of monergism, God alone saves. Even in the Middle Ages, as you suggest, you know, a lot of people think that limited atonement, the L and the tulip, was invented at the Synod of Dort, but the very phrase that defines particular redemption, namely, Christ died sufficiently for the sins of the whole world, but efficiently for the elect alone, was not formulated at Dort. It was taken right out of the textbooks of Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas and any number of classic medieval theologies. At the same time, no one is born a Calvinist. As Charles Spurgeon said, we're all born Pelagians, not just Arminians, but Pelagians. You don't have to be taught a religion of self-salvation. You don't have to be taught the belief that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. You don't even have to be taught the Arminian view that God gives sufficient prevenient grace, but it's up to our free will as to whether we're going to get ourselves born again, as it were. All that just comes naturally to us. We have to be taught the doctrines of grace. And anyone who has gone from not believing in the doctrines of grace to believing them can attest to the fact that it's a grueling experience. It is not comfortable. It's wonderful. It's comforting after the fact. But when you're going through it, it's a mess. It makes a whole mess of your thinking, your feeling, your experience. You don't know how to interpret the last 20 years of your Christian life. It throws everything into confusion. So there's a good reason why these doctrines have been divisive on one hand, uniting Christians across various traditions who disagree about a whole lot of other important things, and yet separating others. It's interesting, even for one brief and shining moment like Camelot, the Eastern Orthodox Church even embraced the five points of Calvinism explicitly through Patriarch Lucaris, Cyril Lucaris, the Patriarch of Constantinople in the 17th century, who actually annexed the Heidelberg Catechism and the canons of the Synod of Dort to the ecumenical councils that the Eastern Orthodox Church embraced. Now, that move was subsequently overturned after he was uh, assassinated. That's one way to settle a theological discussion. In the 17th century, it was a pretty reliable way. Once you did that, they, they really it hampered their vocation. But yeah, ecumenically significant. People say it's divisive. Yeah, it's divisive, but it's also unitive. That's what people have to realize. Anything important, anything important is divisive. It will always mean that some people feel very strongly in favor of it. Some people feel very strongly opposed to it. We have to be charitable in that, but we can't say anything that is going to create strong views one way or the other, we have to avoid because that means that we avoid the most important things and most important questions that there are out there to ask. The gospel itself right. has been known to be divisive. On occasion. Yeah. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's focus a little bit on the Reformation traditions. The two great Reformation traditions are the Reformed folk and the Lutherans, the confessional Lutherans. The founder of 
arguably the main representative body in North America of confessional Lutheranism, or at least one of them, the LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the founder, C.F.W. Walter, his theology was so closely identified with Calvinism that he had to spend much of his ministry and life explaining why he wasn't a Calvinist and consequently excoriating Calvin to show that he wasn't a Calvinist. Explain that, because I, I imagine there's a listener thinking, what do you mean? Yeah, a couple things. Well, first of all, Rod Rosenblatt, my friend on the White Horse Inn, says this very often, that the LCMS— was founded, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was actually founded over a debate over unconditional election, that a lot of the especially Scandinavian Lutherans were Arminian, basically. And here's the thing, you know, people will hear that and say, oh, great, well, I, you know, I, I never really knew anything about Lutherans. Nice to know that there's a whole tradition out there that we can be friends with. It's very important for people to realize <laughs> That, you know, misery loves company. It's a little more complicated than it might seem. It is more complicated because, especially after we become, quote-unquote, Calvinists, we tend to ask only a binary question. Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Lutherans are neither. We have to let them say what they are. We've got to stop pigeonholing people and say, well, you're a Calvinist on these points, but you're an Arminian on these points. No, they have a whole system just as we do. A whole system that holds together, on one hand, unconditional election, not based on foreseen faith. God unconditionally chose whom he would save before the foundation of the world. And on the other hand, universal effectual atonement and an effectual calling through the gospel for people who nevertheless can resist it. Uh, And people can fall away and lose their justification and their regeneration. Now, a a Calvinist looks at that and says, oh, and we were getting along so famously in the first five minutes. You are an Arminian. Well, no, it's not Arminianism. They do believe that God alone saves. And this is where, you know, as a Calvinist, I press my Lutheran friends on these questions. And they call you a rationalist. They call me a rationalist. And I say, no, actually— I do believe in the law of non-contradiction. I don't think that makes me a a rationalist. Uh, I believe many things that are beyond my ability to understand. I cannot believe that the Scriptures teach two things that are completely contradictory. I can't believe that the Scriptures teach, for instance, that God is one person and three persons. That is a contradiction. That's not a mystery. Now, a mystery is that he's one in essence and three in persons. That's not a contradiction, but it's a mystery. It transcends my ability to unpack. We're not rationalists. We believe in mystery. We cannot understand the mind of God. Why does God choose some and not others? What's the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? There are all sorts of questions that I can't answer, and I just have to take the Bible at face value and say it affirms both of these things, and I can't understand how they work together, but they're not a contradiction. In my view as a Calvinist, I think that Lutheranism is self-contradictory at the heart of its system, that although it affirms monergism, God alone saves, it believes that God's grace can be resisted, although my Lutheran friends say, we back that up by saying, no one can say I'm in heaven because I resisted less. Okay, I take that. I take that. But I can't swallow it. I think that it is a contradiction to say. And then they say, well, what about the passages? Yeah, the reason I don't believe that There's a contradiction here is because I don't see a contradiction in Scripture. 
I do see a contradiction in the Lutheran interpretation of the passages. Which gets to a really, really important question, and one of the allegations that's frequently made, and the thing I want you to address, and that's this. Those of us who believe in what is often called Calvinism, doctrines of grace, unconditional election, even reprobation, limited or definite atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, all of those things, and we'll come back and talk about TULIP in a minute, we're often accused of putting logic ahead of Scripture. And you've already touched on this, but why isn't Calvinism the product of a kind of reasoning power and uh, irresistible logic and not really the dynamic, fluid, spiritual teaching of Scripture? Yeah, well, as you know better than any of us, there's been this tendency in 19th century historical theology, especially in Germany, to try to locate the central dogma of a tradition, and you can explain the whole system of that tradition or that theology by its central dogma. So justification is the central dogma of Lutheranism, the sovereignty of God or predestination is the central dogma of Calvinism, and even though that has been totally refuted by historical theologians in the 20th century, completely decimated, you still hear out on the street a defense of that idea. So people will say, well, Calvinists start from a central dogma of predestination and then logically deduce everything else that they believe from that system. They don't really need the Bible, they just need that central dogma, and then they can work out rationally how everything relates. Well, it's an interesting story, uh, entirely plausible if it were actually true. It just doesn't fit with the facts at all. The way, and I bent over backwards to show this in for Calvinism, the way it all hangs together is not by logical deduction. The way it all hangs together is by exegetical induction. In other words, you don't start with one principle at the center and then weave a whole theology out of it. You build a case passage by passage looking at the whole sweep of biblical teaching on these topics. And then you try to say, okay, what is the best hypothesis or what is the best position, interpretation, that doesn't do violence to any of the passages, that, ha- that, that really takes all of the relevant passages into account and doesn't force you to put some verses in a bottle up on the shelf that you just ignore. That's why I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist because I believe that the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism are the best explanation of all of the passages, not just the ones Calvinists like to quote, but the best interpretation of all of the passages. Now, I may be wrong, but I certainly am not a Calvinist because I believe predestination is the organizing theme in Scripture. You don't find election in Calvin's Geneva Catechism. It's not even there. And yet there are whole sections on the sacraments. You look in vain for very much in the Heidelberg Catechism or the Belgic Confession on election. It's related to the church. So it's not a hobby horse. It's not like— Not a hobby horse at all. And you and I are both Americans, and you and I have sort of similar roots. We grew up in a democratic culture. That is a, a culture that levels out, flattens, resists distinctions, 
you know, I'm a product of public schools, and in public schools, you really weren't supposed to stand out, maybe athletically and occasionally academically. But by and large, the culture wants you to fit in and sort of smooths out all the rough stones. So that's the culture in which you and I were raised, and I think pretty much all North Americans are raised. And so there's nothing about our culture that really pushes one to believe in a doctrine or teachings like Calvinism. Yeah. Look at John 6. You know, here are people who were catechized in the Old Testament, well, more in the teachings of the elders, and they couldn't see that Jesus was the bread from heaven. He was the Savior of the world. And Jesus tells them, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. These words that I'm preaching to you right now, our spirit and our life, but some of you don't believe, and that's because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And they're agitated. They say, who does he think he is saying this to us? And we read, many of his disciples left him and walked with him no longer. It was at the point where Jesus preached basically Calvinism that a lot of people walked away. And his own disciples, the twelve, said to him, this is a hard saying, and who can bear it? And Jesus said, well, there's the door. You want to go too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. That is the crisis. You know, that's the turning point. It was a turning point for Peter. It's always a turning point for us to realize these are hard teachings, but once by God's grace, that change is made in our thinking, in our whole orientation, it doesn't just change a few things. It doesn't just, you know, put an I here and cross a T there. It's revolutionary. It's revolutionary, and the disciples realized that in John 6. As a young evangelical Arminian, I remember asking one of the older folks in the congregation, tell me about Romans and Ephesians, because when I look at these, they don't sound much like what I hear on Sundays, and I can't make sense of it. And so you folks know the Scriptures better than I, so tell me about them. And and this um, sort of de facto elder said, well, we're a practical church. We don't really work with those books much. Mm-hmm. Go across town to such and such a congregation, and they can help you. And that obviously made a big impression on me, because that was probably 1978 or so when I heard that. And I thought, well, Ephesians and Romans are the Word of God, and I need to get to grips. But it was terribly difficult to stop thinking like a democratic American, an egalitarian, and to realize that God is the sovereign king, mm-hmm. and that when he spoke into nothing and made all that is, he established a paradigm for the way that he operates, in a sense, and a paradigm for even salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a very similar experience to that, Scott. I was raised in a you know Christian home where my parents, especially my mom, encouraged me to read the Bible for myself, and she loved to argue. She knew the scriptures, loved to debate, you know, in a respectful, as long as I was respectful, discuss the passages. And I was getting into the book of Romans, and it was just changing my life. My older brother told me, you know, you got to get into Romans, and I started reading the book. And I thought that I knew the Bible, you know, because I'd grown up in the church, and, you know, I kind of liked Sunday school and Bible lessons and that sort of thing. I thought I knew Romans. I didn't know it at all. I hadn't really read it. And I tore up that whole section of my Bible, the Pauline epistles— it just fell out of my Bible. <laughs> I was reading it day and night. You're like Luther badgering St. Paul. Yeah. Wanting to know, what, what do you mean by this? It, I, w- I did feel like Paul was right there in the room with me, and we were going at it. I was arguing with him. 
remember one time throwing my Bible across the room. I was so upset reading Romans 9. Mm. And uh, so it was really personal struggle and, and very shocking wrestling. Very shocking. Jacob have I loved. Yep. Esau have I hated. Before either one could do anything. Before they were born. And before I could explain it away. <laughs> In the beginning, God said, let there be. And there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California, has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. Preaching through the book of Exodus, if I ever had any doubts about Calvinism, seeing the connection between Exodus 9 and Romans 9 yeah. was one of the times that really cemented this. In fact, you know, it's Exodus 9.16 and Romans 9.16, really crucial passages. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's shocking because you have to have some way to explain that kind of divine human interaction. It's in the Bible. I remember sitting in a Bible as literature class being taught by a broad-minded Roman Catholic prof. We got to that passage, and the student next to me said, that can't be. Yeah. The student knew what's called in logic a priori, before anything else. Yep. It couldn't possibly be. And my broad-minded Roman Catholic prof said, well, it's what the text says. He was used to getting to grips with texts as they are. Mm-hmm. He didn't have an, an agenda to change the text. But she knew it couldn't be. And she said, well, it, it, the Hebrew must say something else. I said that. So, you know, I have a lot of time for people who are there. I think that actually it's an important moment for people to hear themselves actually verbalize, people who believe the Bible, to actually verbalize, I don't care what the text says, (laughs) I know what it has to say, that cannot possibly be true. Because then you really are at a place where you can honestly wrestle with it and say, you know, okay. Am I willing to submit to this? Yeah, this is a fork in the road for me. Am I going to submit to what the text does really clearly say here? One day, my pastor told me what your pastor told you or your elder. You know, I think you may want to go to another church. I was in an Armenian church, and the uh, pastor was a little concerned about undue influence on the youth group. And I wanted to start a Bible study for my non-Christian friends at the church. It was right next to the public high school. And he said, well, what would you teach? And I said, I want to go through Romans. And he said, oh, young man, I don't think that you're prepared to go through the book of Romans. I said, well, it's with non-Christians. I mean, uh, he said, well, you don't go through Romans with non-Christians. I said, no, but we're talking about it privately and in between parties. And when I, you know, uh, driving, driving them home after a party, when they're especially weak and vulnerable to hearing the gospel, they're interested in talking about these things. Of course, if non-Christians are interested in talking about these things— Yeah, that Christians would be. That Christians would be. And he said, I think you need to leave this church. Son, I'm worried about you. I think you're becoming a Calvinist. And I said, what's a Calvinist? And I looked it up, and sure enough— (laughs) I am one. Yeah, the Encyclopedia Britannica introduced me to my confession— (laughs) And, you know, I think that, honestly, 
that was what drove me to it. And we can be thankful to those in the past who did encourage us to go find a church where we would hear this preached. Your dialogue partner is Roger Olson. Mm -hmm. Teaches at Truett Seminary, which is part of Baylor University in Waco. Is he a classical 16th century Arminian or what sort of Arminian is he? Yeah, this is an important question because, first of all, Arminianism isn't like Calvinism. I forget the content just at this point, the way it historically developed. Arminianism was a movement that arose within the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. It was a protest movement known more by what it was against, namely the traditional Reformed teaching on election and so forth, than what it was for. And as it grew, it tried to grow out of being merely a protest movement, but it was basically an anti-Calvinist movement. And there really was no confession. The five points of remonstrance, the articles of remonstrance, the term to remonstrate is to protest, to object, their confession is five points of disagreement. The canons of Dort, the Reformed response— which was not only the Reformed Church of the Netherlands, but also delegates were sent from the Church of England, from France, uh, well, tried to be sent from France. Places in Germany. Places in Germany, Poland, all kinds of places. It was an attempt to resolve the question. So the five points of Calvinism arose out of a response to the five points of Arminianism. The Reformed Church already had a confession, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. So the canons of Dort supplemented that in order to say, look, those confessions, the confession and the catechism don't say enough about these issues. We need to say more. And so they added the canons of Dort. Long way of saying, for these reasons, Arminianism really did not develop as a confessional movement. What is an Arminian? Well, you have these kinds of Arminians and those kinds of Arminians— of course, you can say you have different kinds of Reformed churches, but you can't really say there are different kinds of Calvinism. When you say, what is a Calvinist? You look back at the five points of Calvinism, and that's pretty much Calvinism. And you're looking at documents like the Belgic Confession, yeah. the Westminster Confession, and yep. so forth. Exactly. You have actual confessions that the five points are a part of, not the whole thing, but they're a part of the fabric. Because of this, you have some Arminians who were virtually indistinguishable from Socinians. That is what we would today call Protestant liberals or Unitarians. Denied the Trinity, denied the deity of Christ, denied substitutionary atonement, were basically Pelagians and Arians. Then you had evangelical Arminians who were more in line with Arminius himself, James Arminius himself, and that leads to John Wesley and a lot of Arminians today. It's more evangelical. Even among those evangelical Arminians, there are some who very clearly affirm justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and other evangelical Arminians who deny it, and then a lot of people in the middle who are confusing on the subject, in my estimation. So Arminianism has various schools in it, and Roger Olson has, I think, helped me to see some of the different nuances within the, the Arminian tradition, to not just dismiss the Arminian tradition as one thing always on a trajectory to disintegration into Unitarianism. But there's a vibrant evangelical Arminian tradition, and we don't disagree on everything. But what I like about Roger is he says, look, we do disagree about some things, and we really do disagree about them. The idea that you can be a Calminian, you can kind of 
have your cake and eat it too. You can be a little bit of Calvinism to protect God's sovereignty and grace, a little bit of an Arminian to protect human responsibility and free will. That is just lazy. Roger says, you know, these two systems are incommensurable on these points. They're saying totally different contradictory things, and let's wrestle with it. And so he's a great conversation partner in that regard. I still don't think that he gets everything right about his descriptions of Reformed theology. He doesn't think that I get everything right about my descriptions of Arminianism, but I think we've helped each other understand a little bit more what at least the other is saying. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. At the very beginning, you suggested there were some problems with the discussion being structured around the tulip. What's wrong with tulip? Perfectly lovely flower. I remember Roger Nicole, the Reformed Baptist theologian, saying, you know, he had problems with terms like limited atonement because it gets you started off on the wrong foot. You say the atonement is limited. Your partner says it is unlimited. I believe in an unlimited atonement. And, of course, right out of the gate, you appear to be giving the least glory to God. So there are rhetorical problems. Yeah, he says, so I send the tulip flying. I am Swiss. I am not Dutch. I do think that limited atonement is a bad way of talking about it because, first of all, everybody who is not a universalist, limits the atonement at some point. The person who believes that Christ died to save everyone and his cross work actually did save everyone he intended to save is a universalist. That's that position. Christ actually saved at the cross everyone for whom he died, and he died for everyone. That will necessarily cash out as universalism. Well, Arminian and Reformed Christians say, look, the Bible doesn't teach universalism, so what's your next option? The Arminian says, well, he died to make salvation possible for everyone, but he didn't actually save anyone at the cross. He didn't actually fully bear the penalty for all of the sins of the elect. He made it possible for God to extend forgiveness on better terms than the Old Covenant. So that's the Arminian interpretation. So they limit the atonement in its power. Christ did not save anyone at the cross. The Calvinist says, no, the scriptures unanimously teach that we were reconciled through his blood, that he has saved us at the cross objectively. Yes, we embrace this salvation through faith. It is applied to us by the Holy Spirit We are given the faith to embrace it, believe it, and be united to Christ. But he objectively satisfied God's wrath toward us at the cross 2,000 years ago. So in that view, the cross is unlimited in its power, but limited in its scope or intention. So first of all, if you're going to use limited atonement, at least say all views except for universalism, limit the atonement. It's either limited in its power or it's limited in its extent. I just think that it gets us started on the wrong foot. The point isn't about whether the atonement is limited. The point is whether the atonement is intentional. What was God's purpose? And there you don't just spin arguments out of thin air through reason and logic. You go to the passages, and the passages tell us God the Father has chosen some to be saved. He gave them to the Son, placed them in the Son. The Son died for them on the cross. 
bearing their guilt, carrying away the wrath of God, triumphing over death, hell, Satan, and the dominion of sin for them. And the Holy Spirit calls to saving faith all those who are ordained to eternal life. Now, there are scads of passages, and I go through them in the book, scads of passages on God the Father choosing some and giving them to the Son. The Gospel of John, more than any other book in the whole Bible, is just filled with this. John 1. John chapter 10. It's, that's where I learned the doctrine of definite, personal, intentional atonement. That's right. You walk from John 1 to John 4 to John 6 to John 10 to John 17 to John 15, then John 17. He laid down his life for his sheep. Yeah. And no one, by the way, getting to perseverance, can snatch them from my hand. The Father gave a people to the Son. He says, you gave them to me. And he also says, in John seventeen nine, he says, I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and you gave them to me. All of these chapters I just referred to have a chunk in them that refers to the Father giving the Son a people. In John 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I will lose not one, but raise him up at the last day. So all of these passages clearly teach God the Father has chosen, and there are many passages besides those in John, God the Father has chosen to save some people. He has taken those whom he has chosen and given them to Christ as the surety or trustee or mediator. And then you have many passages that teach the Holy Spirit calls the elect. Romans 8, those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he predestined, he called. In Acts, we read that all who were ordained to eternal life believed. Paul says he endures all things for the sake of the elect, that they too with him may obtain the blessings of the gospel. Over and over again, you have those who were predestined are called in due season by the Holy Spirit. So it's not because of some kind of relentless logical deduction. It's because of these wonderful consistencies between the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit, the intention of the Father, the intention of the Son, the intention of the Spirit, that we have an intra-Trinitarian covenant playing itself out in history in the covenant of grace. Let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You've been talking a lot, Horton, about the Bible. The Bible this, the Bible that. you got all these passages you've been quoting, but you've been ducking the biggie, the world. And we all know what world means. World means everyone who ever lived. Yeah, it's a good question. Again, if your view can't take account of all of the relevant passages, then you need to rethink the view. John 3.16 is a wonderful verse that in no way, shape, or form challenges the other verses in John that teach that the Father gave to the Son a people for whom he died, who are called by the Spirit in due season. In fact, it is because of God's love for the world, which I do take to mean the world as a collective entity, the human race, even the whole world in its creatureliness, the whole creation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There is absolutely nothing in that that a Calvinist would blanch at. Furthermore, everything in there a Calvinist wants to preach. Why? 
Well, first of all, because it reminds us that God loved the world so much that he chose some who didn't deserve to be chosen, who would have been lost by their own free will, by their own choice, who would have gone their own way. He chose a great mass from that world that he loves to be in Christ. He chose them to be saved. The people whom he chose are those who believe. And therefore, he so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. Here's the thing, Scott. A Calvinist has no problem with the passages that say, whosoever will, let him come. Whoever believes will be saved. Whoever is thirsty, come drink of the river of life. No problem at all, because we believe in the universal free offer of the gospel. However, the Arminian has a problem with the verses we raise. We can say, look, the gospel that I announce to the ends of the earth, along with all the other Christians down through the ages— That gospel that we're proclaiming in our evangelistic work is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. It's not good news for the elect. It's good news for every single human being. But only the elect will embrace that good news because if God left any of us to ourselves, we wouldn't believe it. Our hearts are hard. But God graciously regenerates and gives the gift of faith to those whom he has chosen to save so that they do embrace the gospel when they hear it. And therefore, we can say that universal free offer of the gospel that goes out to every human being will not return unto him void without accomplishing every purpose for which he intended it. So on the one hand, you have the universal free proclamation of the gospel to every human being. Jesus Christ is crucified for sinners. And are you a sinner? Yes. Then embrace it. This is for you. Calvinists have no problem saying that. Whosoever will, let him come. But we also have a place for those verses, usually clustered around the same verses I'm talking about, that say, but no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And whoever the Father draws will surely come to him and never be cast out. So you've got to have a doctrine. Doctrines are just explanations of passages. You have to have a doctrine that accounts for both sets of those passages, not just one. The hyper-Calvinist doesn't have a place for whosoever will. The Arminian doesn't have a place for those who will do so because the Holy Spirit has called them. It might surprise some to find that Calvinists actually believe that you and I have and exercise a real free choice. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I spent a whole chapter on unpacking this. We have free choice to do whatever we want to do. That's not the question. This debate isn't about whether we are free to choose what we want. The question is, are we free to want what is contrary to our nature? And obviously, Jesus says that the one who sins is the slave of sin. Your will is to do the will of your father, the devil. And that will you want to do, his will you want to do. This is the tragedy, the heinousness of sin, that we freely, willfully choose to be bound. It's not a bondage that God imposes by his sovereignty. It's a bondage that results from our fall into sin. The reason why a person doesn't believe is not because God has sovereignly predestined him not to believe. The reason that we don't believe is because we're born into this world as children of Adam. And the good news in any of this is that God chooses to save anyone. 
So let's not obsess over God passing over, reprobating the rest of the human race. Let's glory and exult in the grace of God for having chosen, redeemed, and called any sinners like ourselves into fellowship with his Son. Another distinction that's helpful in our tradition is the one between natural and moral ability. This is where Pelagians down through the ages have really stumbled. They say, look, God can't ask us to do or command us to do something that we're not capable of doing. God can't say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, unless you can be. He can't say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you can do that. The way that the Reformed tradition answers that, which is fairly traditional with Thomas Aquinas and others, is that we have the natural ability to do everything that God requires. In other words, we don't have a missing chip. God hasn't sovereignly taken an ability to choose away from us. We still have all of the natural abilities that God equipped us with in creation. We're not missing a part. It's that the whole totality of who we are and what we love, what we want, is so twisted and distorted by our bondage to sin that we cannot morally choose that which is contrary to our moral condition. That's the point. So when we say we can't choose Christ apart from his grace, we're not saying that we don't have the ability to will for or against Christ. What we're saying is we don't have the moral capacity to choose Christ unless that will is somehow no longer in bondage to sin and death. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.